Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of Painting the Corners, the Baseball and International Affairs podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Mitchell. I want to apologize for the delay. It's been about three weeks since our last episode, and it's just, you know, my life has been busy, uh, and I wanted to get some good guests, and I have hopefully have a few lined up for the new year. The podcast started in September, for those of you who are new. This is our 12th episode, so we did 12 over the last four months of the year, which is an average, according to my math, of about three a month. And that's a pace I really would guess would be my goal for 2017 would be to stay at a pace roughly like that. Uh, let me just turn to some business here before we get to the uh, – I'll introduce the guest and then we'll hit the podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, follow us on Stitcher. I, if you do follow us on either of those, particularly iTunes, please rate and review us. That's very helpful for us. If you want to contact me, Lincoln Mitchell, there's several ways to do that. You can email me at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My website is www.lincolnmitchell.com. The podcast is on the left there, Painting the Corners. You can find it. You can also find some of my recent writing on domestic American politics, links to some of my recent interviews and podcasts about the book, my new book. My new book is called Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball. That's available at Temple University Press. You can also buy it on Amazon.com or Powell's or a lot of other online booksellers. If you buy it and you like it, again, it's always great if you can uh, rate and review me. We've had, I've had two great book events here in New York, and I'm planning one for San Francisco on January 27th at the San Francisco Baseball Academy. That's going to be at 7 p.m. on the 27th. The San Francisco Baseball Academy is an indoor facility where you can you know, take batting practice, work with a pitching coach, all of those kind of things, great programs for kids. It's on Geary around Blake. Uh, if you're an old-time San Franciscan, you'll know it's where the Bridge Theater was for many, many years, and it's not there anymore. The baseball facility is there. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can check it out on the site. If you'd like to have me speak about the book or do a bookstore event or something like that or do some media, contact me at Lincoln at LincolnMitchell.com. Today's podcast has a bit of a Ukraine theme, and I know that we've discussed Ukraine in the past, but this is the first podcast that's really dedicated to both the baseball and the politics in Ukraine. So if you're interested in Ukraine, this will be a great opportunity for you to, to learn stuff and to enjoy it. And if you're not, it's a good learning opportunity. You'll learn more about Ukraine and certainly more about baseball in Ukraine than you have in a, in a very long time. And the reason we had a Ukraine-themed podcast today is a couple. First, United States uh, now has something in common with Ukraine, which is that Putin has hacked both of our politics. So maybe we should learn a little bit more about this country. Uh, and obviously, it remains in the news a great deal. Our first guest today is Basil Tarasco. Basil is the district administrator of the Ukraine Little League Baseball and Softball Program and is the former head coach of the Ukraine National Baseball Team. He has had a long and fascinating career in baseball. He's been working in baseball in Ukraine since the early 1990s. We're going to talk a lot about that on the show. He has also coached high school and college baseball and softball kind of all over the New York area, and he's been a scout in the Braves and Padre organization. As recently as a few days ago, Basel has helped deliver 300 pounds of donated baseball equipment to the United Ukrainian Relief Committee, which will be shipped to four orphanages in Donetsk Oblast. And for those of you uh, who don't know the politics or geography of, Georgia, uh, of Ukraine all that well, Donetsk is in the eastern region, which is currently where much of the, the conflict is occurring. Donetsk will have six Little League teams in 2017, and many of the children playing 
were rescued from Donetsk Orphanage No. 1, which is held in separatist hands, really Russian hands. Um, and Basel is working on some exciting events in Ukraine, including organizing the 18th Ukraine Little League Championship for children school ages 10 to 12, and that's going to be May 29th to June 1st of 2017. And he's also organizing the 10th Ukrainian Little League Championship for children from orphanages, um, and that's a new Little League program, and that's September of 2017 that will start. His website is ukrainebaseball.org. You can also reach him about any of, of this work at the letter B, the letter T, his initials, BT4, Ukraine at AOL.com. That's B as in boy, T as in Tom, the number four, Ukraine at AOL.com. If you are planning to be in Ukraine during uh, any of these events, please let him know if you are interested in being an umpire or a scorekeeper. As you will learn from the podcast, umpires who can be viewed as objective and scorekeepers who know their way around an official score sheet are, would be very helpful to, to Basel. Our second guest, who will focus more on the international affairs side, is Andriy Dobriansky. He is a community organizer active in, Ukrainian American, in the Ukrainian-American diaspora, principally as a representative of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, as well as the Ukrainian World Congress. Uh, since the events of 2013 and 14, uh, Andriy has been presenting his, representing his community throughout the media and assisting Ukraine in getting its message out. Uh, and we've actually, he's been on The Daily Show, Al Jazeera America, MSNBC, uh, Voice of America, and we've actually been on uh, some of these, well, at least one of these programs together, I think that was Turkish television, discussing the pol uh, political situation in Ukraine. He sits on the executive board of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, which is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization, which unites 20 organizations and dozens of branches nationwide, and is really the largest representation of about 1 million or more uh, Americans of Ukrainian descent. And he's led election observer teams in Ukraine for uh, UCA, which is UCCA. Um, and he's monitored the presidential and parliamentary elections without exception since 1990. So if there's an election in Ukraine, Andrei is there. And he works at the D.C. Bureau to connect local Ukrainian communities with their elected Ukrainian communities here with their elected representatives in Washington and the state capitals, explaining the developments and trajectory of their community to elected officials. He's represented the Ukrainian World Congress at UN-recognized uh, NGO and has a long, long, deep background in, in Ukrainian diaspora politics. He's also directed a summer Ukrainian dance program, uh, so he has a background in the arts. And his background in the arts has extended to, uh, it includes an interest in, in baseball, where he has successfully uh, organized two uh, Ukrainian nights at City Field, and, they have, and he and his brother have performed at City Field and other sporting events numerous times. And he almost got to sing the national anthem at opening day. But uh, he missed out on, on, I guess, they made the finals, but what weren't selected. Uh, he has, as recently as November 8th, provided live commentary for Voice of American Ukrainian Language Service to discuss our election here in America, and recently helped include the 22nd and annual, the Quadrennial Congress of Ukrainians in America. On January 22nd, if you're in Chicago and you're Ukrainian or you're just interested, there will be a Ukrainian Unity Day commemoration on which uh, Andrei is working right now with the former Ambassador John Herbst, ambassador uh, to Ukraine, who is a, uh, a well-known uh, diplomat, and Congressman Roskam, who is a Republican congressman from, from Illinois. Uh, the U.S.-Ukraine relation events about so Ukrainian sovereignty will be February 25th in Washington, and uh, he's also working on Ukraine Mother Language Day celebration at the U.N. If you want to uh, be more in touch with Andre, you can follow him on Twitter at T-U-F-K-A-A. -A. That's the letter T as in Tom, U-F as in Frank. K-A-A, and to find out more about his organization is UCCA.org. Welcome, Basel. Welcome, Andre. Nice Thank to have you. you here. So, Basel, let me begin with you a little bit. 
Tell us a little about your work in, your, in Ukraine. What have been some of your biggest challenges, your biggest successes? Hard to begin. Uh, this is my uh, 25th year uh, helping uh, Ukraine develop baseball as a volunteer. And uh, right now, going backwards sort of, is uh, developing the Little League program. And it's uh, not easy because of the war situation in eastern Ukraine. Um, but the, the Little Leagues are growing slowly. Um, it's hard to really uh, get new Little Leagues organized because uh, all the programs are in schools and um, it's hard to get coaches because there are no universities that offer uh, classes in how to coach baseball. So we kind of depend on uh, the players who lead the national team who have a teacher's background who are phys ed teachers to kind of get a job in a school and as a director for permission to start a baseball class. So it's a slow process. And uh, what I'm happy to report, just last week, I took uh, over 300 pounds of uh, donated baseball equipment to uh, United American, United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to ship it to four orphanages in the Donetsk Oblast, which is the Oblast where the separatists reside. And it's going right to Slovyansk, which is a city there. And uh, four little leagues have signed up for, for this coming season. So even though there's a war going on, those teachers, those directors who want something new for their kids. So, uh, so I just rob, steal, beg for equipment, and I, I get it over to them. And th- that's, that's what I'm doing, are, developing are, existing and new programs. Are most of the ball players there, are these first-generation uh, baseball players? I mean, in other words, you're bringing something that's really new to them. Well, now, since I've been there 25 years, the Little League's been there for 20 years, in Kiev, last year, there were three Little Leagues, the most, the most of any city in the country. I met players there, the older, 40s and 50s, who played baseball when they were younger. Now their kids are playing baseball, which is what's true here. My sons, I played baseball. My sons played baseball here. So now I see in Kiev, where the population is over 3 million, there's an adult league of eight teams now. We just sprung up within the last two years. They actually built a field in uh, on the Livu Berezhno, the Druzhba Heroyu. I was there in October. It's crude, but there's netting, which is permanent. There are stands. It's growing. So now we have the kids of those fathers. As I, I met one player who played for me in 1994 when I coached the junior team. He goes, you remember me? He goes, no. Yeah, I played for you. So it's slowly developing. And, you know, it's going to take a long time. Can I just ask, uh, when you mentioned, Basil, that uh, your kids played uh, and you played as a second, you're, you're not saying just as an American, you're saying as a Ukrainian-American because your, your ancestors would not have been playing baseball. So you're, oh, saying, no, no. you're saying in your family there have been two generations as these kids that he's te- teaching <laughs> exactly. in Ukraine. So I'm just... Well, when I, when I went to St. George Ukrainian School, right. I was the only one who didn't play soccer. I wanted something different. St. George Ukrainian School is where? It's <laughs> on 6th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. It's a little Lisbon from all over. Yeah, little Ukrainian New York. Yeah, because yes. I was born in Germany. I came when I was five. Yeah. But I didn't want... I, soccer was boring to me because I can't play this. So I started playing baseball. I, I learned it on my own. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't make my high school team at Cardinal A's, but made my, I played for Hunter College. I pitched for Hunter College. Wow. So, and then I, I stuck with it. It just... One of those things. To me, it's chess. It's chess. There's an offense and a defense. And, and what about baseball? Why, how, why do some Ukrainians grab, grab onto baseball? 
what is it that, that in Ukraine yeah. the game than well Ukrainians it, are athletes baseball yeah. started in 1986 in the Soviet Union I remember the first club I think was in Odessa Foton and I I met some of the players who who, who were recruited who did they pick they picked 20 year olds who were javelin throwers who could not reach the next level not Olympic grade <laughs> uh, team handball players mm -hmm. and track and field who could advance to the next level why team handball? Because the motion of the arm mimics uh, the pitching ball, motion. Right? Mm -hmm. So they paid them, because it became an Olympic sport, the Russians, the Soviets, paid them to learn a new sport. Funny thing, in 91, my first trip to Ukraine, I was coaching a team, Pobotovic, in Kiev, professional team, because they paid them. And the manager said, I have this 18-year-old javelin thrower. I want you to look at him. Teach him how to pitch. I said, uh, Victor, bring him down. He brings him down. Show him how to hold the ball. I mimic the throw. He takes the ball. I put a catcher out about 60 feet. Throws the ball 300 feet. <laughs> it's a javelin. You're going to right field. I said, no, son. <laughs> it did work. Corner for you. So, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's how it was. And it's like a million stories like that. Do are there... Are there any folks in Ukraine who are baseball fans? Does a big culture of being a baseball fan exist there yet? No, as, uh, as I was thinking the other night, uh, reviewing uh, this podcast, I said to my girlfriend, so you know, there are no fans because the parents, to them, I think it was a Soviet idea, where just, they just give your kids to someone else and you take care of them. Go to school or after school program, they're yours. Seriously. Literally, they, no one comes to the championship game. No one comes. Kids are there, and their coach is done. Uh, there is no time. The parents uh, work. It's, again, it's the, the mentality. Tovashidite, uh, those are your kids. I, I would also point out, probably, uh, with a, when you're talking about where to find coaches, etc., uh, to train these kids, uh, there's that culture of uh, in Ukraine where sports is something that is studied and, you know, our... Uh, the Klitschko brothers have doctorates. Yes, and, yes, you know, yes. they're not only heavyweight champions, but they have to have a doctorate in boxing. And <laughs> you're a sportsman. <laughs> exactly. A, exactly. Right. Well, but 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 that is important for a a uh, endeavor like baseball, which doesn't have that history and therefore doesn't have the educational uh, um, kind of pedigree in Ukraine. So why would you send your kids to somebody who doesn't have? Uh, as we know PhD in Ukraine, the, baseball coach. More, more, more importantly, who doesn't have a pachatka, we say, right? Doesn't have the sure. stamp uh, on that you need from Soviet bureaucracy on everything. So if you don't show me a paper with a stamp on it that you're an expert in something, why would I send my kids to do it? So those parents who do send their kids to do it, right? What do they, I mean, what do they know of baseball in the broad, outside of you? Are these parents who are cosmopolitan in that they've maybe been to the United States, been to Japan, you know, know it's a big deal somewhere else, or they just kind of... It, it, it almost, try something it new. Almost, all but one little league, all the little league programs are in schools. Kid goes to school. The phys ed teacher, beginning of the school year, uh, the phys ed teachers get together and they recruit for their classes because teachers are paid on the number of classes they have. So if you're a baseball coach, uh, Lincoln, and you got two kids, you, you don't have a class. You're a baseball coach. <laughs> right. So it's competitive. Mm -hmm. They get paid per hour, per session. So the baseball coach, the Pachatka, who yeah. has a stamp, mm -hmm. who played on a national team, who gets some kind of award. Well, once, you, once you're on a national team, you get some kind of honorary uh, diploma, <laughs> and you get that. And again, you go to school, director sees it, okay, and then he recruits, and that's how the Little Leagues are. There's one Little League, the key of baseball school, we started two years ago. It's an after-school program where the kids pay. 
there they recruit and parents who have the money and in Kiev there are locations sure. as you know where there's money and those kids pay and pay for play or play for pay so that's the only one and that's Otherwise, not radically no different to the, you know, from the United States yes right. here it's after school your father right. I'm a father mm-hmm. the kid's five years old T-boy you put a ball in the tee you're a coach right there you have to have a diploma exactly. you got a pachatka exactly. you know, although I had an interesting ex- experience <laughs> when I was writing uh, my last book about base, my, my first baseball book the most recent book and I interviewed uh, a woman who runs Westside Little League here on the, we're on the west side of Manhattan now so the, my, the local little league which my kids had played for until they basically got too old and it's one of the best little leagues in the country because it's very big. They have a lot of kids. And also they have, in addition to, uh, they have a lot of things that most leagues don't. So they have real recreational through higher, through about 14 years old, which most leagues, most of the leagues today don't, right? They also have a challenger league for right, kids. Right, handicapped. And then they have, they're very welcoming to girls. So it's, I think, a very good little league, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I recommend if you live in the neighborhood that you would go there for your kids. But, and, and, and it's in the books. I'm not talking out of school. But she said that it's difficult when the kids get to be about 10 or 11, it's difficult to get good coaches. And, and the reason her for, that, that she said for that was that um, you can't assume, at one point she said to me, you can't assume that a 50 or 45-year-old American man knows baseball. <laughs> well, enough to coach the way 20 or 30 years ago that was a given. And that there, right? You got a caveat there, anymore. You right, anymore. anymore. Right. Well, that was right, one of the right. themes of the book. Yeah. But, but, but in Ukraine, you know, of course, there's no history of that, right? right? So, so it's, but it is tough here, too. And for the younger kids, it's largely babysitting, right? It's making sure everyone's happy, nobody yeah. gets hurt, um, all of that. Um, let me ask you a, just a funny thing. What is, what is the moment, what is the hardest rule you've had to explain to little leaders? <laughs> hardest rule is not a rule. Swing the bat. <laughs> They've learned now through the years that uh, since the pitcher's accuracy is not that good, they tell the batters, wait for a strike. They don't swing. Now I'm thinking next year I'm going to set up something new at the championships where I'm going to calculate how many times they don't swing. And I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a bonus of five riven every time the, the kid puts the ball in play. Puts the ball in play. Or if he swings at a third strike, but it was a strike. And then every time you, you get caught looking at a third strike, I will deduct five riven. It will never you? be a deficit. And then the money that the team earns, I'm going to buy ice cream for the kids. Oh, so you're not I got it. No, no, no. taking no. canned money from no, the no, kids. No, 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 no. Wait a second. So we're on the record here. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I know, I know these teachers make so little. Yeah. So little. So what I do once, I said, boys, here's what we're going to do. Here's a scorecard. Because they don't keep score. They got a piece of paper and they write something. I don't know what they're doing. They, they, they don't keep their lineup other than the lineup I presented them and I give them a copy. That's their lineup. They don't keep the other team's lineup. So I said this. I'm going to give you some money, but I want you to earn it. So I gave them a, a, a double sheet lineup, which Little League uses. We have both teams on one sheet. Fill this out. Keep score the best way you can. At the end of the game, you bring it back to me. I'll sign it. And then I'll give you 25 even per game at the end of the championship because I don't want to give out money right away. At that time, 25 even was substantial for them. Excuse me. End of the tournament, out of possible, let's say, 40 lineup cards, I got two back. I want to give you something. But do this way I can teach them yeah, how to keep right. the score. And end and the game, we'll talk, we'll sit down, we'll talk about it, do it this way, do nothing. I want, I want to follow up on that, but I just want to follow up on this, <laughs> this, the thing about not swinging. When my kids uh-huh. were, when, when, when my older son was six years old, so it was T-ball, playing in, in uh, Little League here in the neighborhood, 
And they were on a team, I think they were on the Red Sox, which was not a great team to be on on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. (laughs) I mean, there were some parents who were not happy about this at all, including me and his best friend at the time and his father, who was still a close friend. We were not happy about this. But they were playing another team. And you know, when you're six years old, you ground ball to shortstop, where that ball ends up is anybody's guess, right? right? You can throw it anywhere. Even make a good throw, whether that ball is going to be caught or cause a bloody nose, you don't know, right? And one of the coaches was having the kids roll the ball to first, and let's say it's a grounder to second, or the pitcher, right? There's a lot of those in T-ball. Yeah. Roll it to first, which technique. is easier to pick up. Uh-huh. But that's not baseball. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the kids, my kids were so angry. They felt, that, and they were right, and it was yeah. this kind of cosmic injustice. We're trying to, it's not easy, but you know. And I said, you're right. I mean, I know what to tell you, but, but you're right. We're not going to make a fight over it, but it's not, it's right. the same kind of a thing. That happens when I was coaching my son's team. I was, that time I was coaching at CCNY up the block. And had my little league team, eleven year olds. We lost the game. We didn't swing the bat. So on practice on Wednesday, we go through our routines. At the last portion is batting practice. I give the lineup. Mm-hmm. My friend Alice, uh, my next door neighbor, is my assistant coach. She's Italian. I said, Al, bring me the biggest statue you have, because because you're religious. So he brings this, brings this huge statue in his car. I said, bring it out, Al. Puts it on home plate. First batter. No, no, no. Wait a second. Puts it there. I get on one knee. I throw 10 pitches to the statue. What's he, what what's he doing? doing? What's he doing? That's how we looked on Sunday. You got to swing the bat. You got to swing the bat, boys. Next game, we swung the bat. Come on. There's a thrill. Hit the ball. I was, but in Ukraine, uh, it, if you miss, it's a sign that you, that you don't know what you're doing. It's defeat. No, they have this mentality. You know, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing if I swing, I miss. No, boys, swing it three times, I'll shake your hands. But, that, that, but this and what you were saying um, a moment ago about the scorekeeping, right? Trying to learn to keep scores and everything. It's what, it seems to me, because I've done a lot of work in baseball in Georgia, right? Not hands-on, but I've worked with the folks there. As a matter of fact, I have a certificate over there, which I'll show you at some point. It does have a stamp on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does. It does. Oh, here, here it is. I'll show it to you. Oh, right here now. we go. Here we go. See? And I have some photos, but, but here's the actual certificate. Um, it's mostly for supporting, you know, their efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pachatka, yeah. Yeah. It's all in Georgia. It's not in. It is. Look at this. But um, it. it's official. But yeah. it's it's and, and this it's, is from Michaels, by the way. This the frame is from Michaels, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, from, it's not. It's nothing fancy. Um, but I, uh, it's working with kids about baseball outside of the cultural context of baseball, right? Yes. So many Americans of, of my generation, your generation, your generation, learned to score because their parents taught them, right? Um, my father did not, but an older guy, that, like I sat next to a guy at a Giants game growing up who showed me, you know, or he was a baseball coach in middle school. So that, that context, right? I mean, you can say, when, when you say, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, if you're talking about swing the bat, don't just look at the ball, you can talk about the mighty Casey, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. can tell... You can tell how, you know, the, the yes, called shot where Babe Ruth, you know, if, if we believe the story, you know, let the first two go by for strikes, right? <laughs> it only takes one swing yeah. to, you know, hit it out. But, but so without that cultural context, is it harder to, to explain baseball to kids, to get them excited about it? You really can't because they have nothing to look at, in a sense, or to, have no one to speak to because most of the coaches uh, in the newer leagues have never played the game. Uh, they may look at a video... Someone said to me, I know it all. I said, what you learn? I saw a film, and they showed 15 minutes of a baseball game. Yaf said it was me. I understand everything. That's also mentality. They understand everything. So no, 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 no. There's so much. There's so much. No, we got it. So no. I, when I gave, I gave clinics in Ukraine uh, four times, and I believe in handing out 
It's like a lesson plan. Right. And I gave him all the activities that you can do in a gym. There were a couple pages. So you just take pick and choose, fielding, throwing, catching, batting, and pick and make a lesson plan for yourself. I don't think anybody's using it, but they came, they took it. Oh, yeah, they got a, they got a stamp, they got a certificate for me, Pachatka. They go back, look, I went. Right. There were times I had them for a weekend, and I paid for the hotel room uh, outside of Ternopil on, for the Saturday night. There were coaches who came Saturday who didn't come, come back on Sunday, but I paid for their room. So someone told me, you know something we got to do is let them come, let them stay, let them pay, then you reimburse them on Sunday. There are coaches who think of it as a weekend excursion. Or something. Oh, my God. And they, they kind of learned that. And, and I'm going to... I want to change course just for in a second, but what I've taken is saying that there's so much out there to learn, right? I mean, you can't learn baseball in 15 minutes. You can't really learn it in 15 years, mm-hmm. right? And, and now what I say, I mean, I've been around baseball my whole life. You know, I've played, I've coached, I've read, I've written, I've attended more games than I can count. When people, like if I'm with my kids at a baseball thing for the kids and they say, oh, are you about base- a baseball fan? I always say, I'm learning. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm trying right. to learn because it's true. I'm oh, yeah. still trying oh, to yeah. learn. And there's, and there's always, you know, different aspects you can learn. Andre, I want to talk a little bit about your work with the, the Ukrainian diaspora, particularly you know, here in the U.S. Um, how engaged they are in questions regarding Ukraine, how that affects political behavior here. Obviously, it seems like this is a moment for the Ukrainian <laughs> diaspora that is, uh, I would say, very critical. Certainly in, in the last couple decades, that's hard to think of a more critical moment. What are the, tell me about that. Uh, well, uh, when you're talking about uh, post uh, 2016 election, uh, looking at uh, an entirely brand new world in terms of how politics and uh, statecraft is going to be run here in the United States. Uh, Ukrainians, just like any minority in the United States, are uh, are, are very diverse. So uh, even though there are people who like to, you know, pigeonhole people as, oh, these guys are all Republicans, these are all Democrats, and I, I know because having worked in Ukrainian diaspora and doing a lot of uh, anniversary events, etc. I, I go through so many reams of our, of our people's history in this country, and, and our people have been diverse from the very beginning. So if the country goes one way, you'll have more Ukrainians going that way. If the country goes the other way, I, I know tons of people who will vote on both sides. So um, uh, I think that it is very critical for our uh, community to, uh, as a community organizer, to be more and more involved uh, in our political process. Uh, it's something that we've been working on to uh, as, as older immigrants have been very active uh, before, during the Cold War, before the fall of the Soviet Union, in terms of advocating for uh, some kind of relief for our what was then an enslaved homeland, uh, we have an entirely new generation of immigrants here uh, who initially came for freedom, then they came for jobs. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily a world where people come over here and assimilate anymore, so it's now it's come work here for a couple of years and go back a couple of years. So, um, so why get involved in the political process? Uh, and I think uh, since the war, that has changed everything. Since actually, I would say even before then, since since the revolution began, uh, you know, I'm I'm one of those people. Uh, people call me a professional Ukrainian because I'll be at every single event that you have. And uh, in September of 2013, uh, there was uh, 13 of us outside the Russian mission saying, uh, Putin, please uh, don't interfere with the EU-Ukraine uh, Trade Association. Right? That first Sunday when the revolution started, in, after the revolution started in Ukraine, uh, in uh, November of 2013, uh, there were 500 people that came out of nowhere uh, to start standing in front of the missions, and they would do that every week. Uh, people all of a sudden got way more uh, 
politically active, and that includes uh, the aforementioned uh, uh, immigration wave who hadn't been so politically active before. Also, uh, people who had been longtime members of the diaspora in terms of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents came here, and they put aside their Ukrainianness and said, I'm, I'm something different, and I had phone calls from people in all sorts of different fields saying, how do I get involved? I want to do something. Like, I'm in this field. What can I do? So It must be a very... It's, it's strange to me because when, in 2013-14, this period when there was this growth and excitement, there was this, this moment here. I mean, if the Republican primary goes a different way this year, right? Let's just say we had Marco, I'm picking a name, Marco Rubio, it doesn't matter, John Kasich, running against Hillary Clinton yeah. uh, for the presidency. The discussion about Putin and Russia policy would have occurred in a very narrow bandwidth because yeah. they basically would have agreed on, you know, pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Republican would have accused Obama of being soft, the, the reset, Clinton would yeah. have defended, yeah. but there would have been, okay, going forward, we're going to do the same things, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody would have been talking about lifting sanctions, you know, that, that kind of, <laughs> that wouldn't be in the discourse, right? Apparently, um, now, I think as Americans, we now have, uh, we share something with Ukraine, which is that Putin has interfered in both of our internal political right. processes, and I'm not sure that's a great honor, but that's, <laughs> that's um, the reality. But it, with that, and where we are today, you know, uh, for better or for worse, we have a chunk of the American electorate and a chunk of the party that you would expect to be the more hawkish kind of traditionally on, on Russia-related matters, essentially saying Putin's not such a bad guy. Completely. Mean, kind of the polling data. And that comes from a, the leadership, I know that's used, I use that word loosely, but the leadership from the, from the incoming White House. Mm -hmm. How does that affect, I mean, I mean, suddenly this has changed, right? In, in, in a couple of years ago, a year ago, this, this Ukrainian diaspora was, you know, bi, I assume bipartisan support, and it was a very kind of comfortable place to be politically. Now it's, I think, an equally important place to be politically, but there might be other difficulties I think that. we'll see what happens congressionally, because uh, no matter what the White House has done, there's been an incredible amount of support uh, month after month, basically, uh, since uh, Ukraine was invaded uh, and a little bit before then, but really with the sanctions uh, from coming from uh, both sides of the House and, con and Senate, uh, and even even two days ago, there was a bipartisan letter from the House Ukrainian Caucus. A uh, couple of weeks, a week and a half ago, the Senate Ukrainian Caucus put out another statement saying, we want to work with uh, the new president, and but we want to keep the sanctions. we got to keep pushing it. So there is bipartisanness uh, in, in terms of the uh, Senate and House, but we'll see what that means in terms of uh, the new administration and what the new cabinet will hold. I mean, the question mm -hmm. is really what happens uh, in the selection of the new cabinet and who's going to be the... Who's going to be the? Somebody's going to be blocked. You know, you, it always happens. Right. Somebody, who, but who? But, but is it going to be like commerce, or is that going to be? You or know, the attorney general? Exactly. Yeah. Like, who knows? Plenty of places yeah, yeah, yeah. to go if you're yeah. looking to do that. Right? Exactly. Some people say treasury. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. I heard Keith Ellison the other day saying it would be health and human services. So you can really go. I mean, just right? you don't know, right? Right. Right. But it's not going to be all of them. No. And so be. and so for people who are really worried about the state of foreign affairs and and what uh, what the nomination of Tillerson might mean, uh, then. Uh, then it's, again, it's a crapshoot. We haven't had this situation where we're completely blind. And, going and it seems like it's, addition, additionally to whether it's Tillerson, which I think would be the, the yeah. person you'd be most focused on if you're sitting in the Ukrainian diaspora, mm -hmm. it's also a question of who makes foreign policy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen administrations where the Secretary of State, and not such long gone in our history, mm -hmm. is pushed out a little bit, right? Yeah. And Michael Flynn, I think, calling a wild card on Russia would be a generous description, mm -hmm. you know, of, of where he sits. So it's, mm -hmm. there's, there's that piece of it as well. Mm -hmm. How, how confident are you that the Republicans in Congress, I mean, look, they're, they're the majority now, um, or still, uh, will, will hold the line on Ukraine? Uh, it depends how many there are uh, in terms of pushing on this, but, uh, but uh, 
Republican-wise, the, the co-chair of the Ukrainian caucus in the Senate is Senator Portman, who drafted this letter last week. Uh, on the on the House side, uh, the Republicans are, are pretty strong as well. So it's uh, it's it's a, there was an article today, right, in Politico about uh, was it Flores uh, and uh, he making a statement uh, regarding immigration reform in the House, and all of a sudden the bright right army. Right. came out and said, uh, we're just going to smash this guy for the next couple of days. Hannity jumped on that. And so it was kind of a warning shot to anybody who dares to, you know, push back about, against this revolution uh, that the president-elect is trying to push push in. So it's a matter of where, again, it's a matter of where the stand is. Is the stand going to be on foreign policy, which the way things have been going the last couple of years, very sadly, is this rise of, you know, neo-isolationism, uh, this, you know... Uh, it's amazing to me, for, you know, I've, I've been reading Charles Lindbergh a lot the last couple of years, and it's fascinating how you can just change the name of the country, and like, we don't need to send our boys over there, yes. Germany, we've been well, doing I mean, it again, and it's just been, it's just been on the know, rise here. So. My, I'm, my father grew up in New Jersey mm-hmm. during World War II, which was, if you were, you know, a five-year-old Jewish kid, a pretty good place to be, <laughs> all things considered. <laughs> But, you know, Lindbergh was a, a very, very, you know... Enormous figure. Yes, yeah. and also the phrase America first. I mean, right. you know, if you say that the to an 80-year-old yeah. Jewish American, it <laughs> sounds a, it has a very specific resonance, uh-huh. and, and, and it's not a good one. Yeah. And to hear that over and over again, I mean, it, it was really disturbing, you know, yeah. that you would just put that, that exact language, and, you yeah. know, as time goes by, people don't, yeah. don't know. Um, but I want to go back to Rob Portman, right? So Portman, sure. in my, I believe, ran ahead of Trump in the last Senate election, right? Yeah. In the last, you know, he was on the ballot in the Senate yeah. for in Ohio. Yeah. So he's not, I mean, in a rational political world, Donald Trump doesn't have much leverage over Rob Portman. No. Um, so there is, and, and now the question is, will, first of all, are we still in a rational political world? The answer is not an obvious yes. <laughs> and secondly, will do politicians think they are? And the answer is also not an obvious right. yes. So we have to answer, uh, look into both those questions yeah. and see see what time tells. But I'm wondering more, more kind of concretely, are there specific states in the United States where you know, the Ukrainian vote really is significant and uh, can make a difference? In, in basically every swing state. This is something that I was screaming to journalists. I had this. I wrote about I wrote about this. <laughs> you were one of the people. There were, there I, were about, I couldn't make it happen, but I wrote about there it. There were four <laughs> really strong articles from late September, I'd say all of October, like one after the other. Times, Washington Post, um, uh, I, I can't remember all of them, but talking about the Eastern European vote. And I was screaming with journalists because I work with media relations for the community here uh, and just letting, them, letting the media know what's happening. Uh, and why are you focusing on the African-American vote? Why are you focusing on Hispanic vote? There are, there are blocks of the country that's, that might shift one or two percentages. There's a, there's, you know, if you're talking about the Eastern European vote, Ukrainians number over a million, people of Ukrainian descent, um, uh, number over a million in this country. If you lump all the people of the post-Soviet uh, background... And the NATO countries, the Polish, yeah, yeah, Poland. Yeah, Central, Poland, Central and Eastern European. That's, that's, NATO, Warsaw that's Pact 20, million, Warsaw Pact. 20 million Americans we're talking about right. here. Right, and, and even if, mm-hmm. if a fourth of them, let's say... A, 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 yeah, right. Are, and, and where are immigrants centered? Where are those communities centered? In big cities. Right. You places know, like Pennsylvania, Ohio. You're talking about Pennsylvania. So, a lot of, a lot of uh, blue-collar jobs, that's where they came in first. So it's Pennsylvania, it's uh, Ohio, it's Michigan, Wisconsin. it's Wisconsin, it's Florida. Also, uh, we have a huge concentration there. Uh, now we have uh, also rising numbers in Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Washington State. Uh, and these, these are the, are the places, and these are the places, by the way, that have produced some of the best baseball players, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, one agrees, 
Right. I mean, no, but no, going back to some of the, the best, I mean, Stan Musial was a, a Polish-American who from Denora, Pennsylvania, right? You know, you know that next to Shylock, who's, who's the yes. Hall of Famous Ukrainian? Who was an umpire famous? Yes, of course, I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder, if was Paul, is Paul Karnerko Ukrainian? You know, I try to write to him. I look at rosters. and a Ukrainian uh, name. I, I, I try to get, uh, get in contact with him through the, uh, the Chicago White Sox uh, website. I, I thought there. Out. I thought there was a. Uh, I thought there was. The a, name is right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I thought there. I thought I told people. I thought there was an award. <laughs> Did you good? I think there I was. Don't know an if he is, but I said that there might have been an award given to him uh, by the Chicago community at some point. I don't know if that was something to just given a name or actually attended, but uh, but he's been very much associated as as if people name Ukrainians in sports. He's up. His his name is listed. I just got this in the mail yesterday from Eli Gerba. Remember him? He's a Eli pitcher for Gerba? the Yankees and the Angels in the sixties. And he sent, uh, he has a book out, so he ordered the book and he sent it to me with an autographed photo of him, but he's Serbian American. No. Yeah, and he was, uh, he sent me two, I gave the other one to a friend. Um, But getting back, the piece, the the argument I made, I I actually wrote this for Jared Kushner's paper while I was still writing there before I left, but I I made a different, I made a related argument, which was that, that the Clinton campaign will do this. I had assumed they would just do this because it was so obviously the smart thing to do. Reaching out to those yes. communities. And they have. They, they, did. they did. Okay. They did. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily um, the uh, Secretary Clinton herself, but uh, everybody from, um, uh, I'm blanking here, but definitely Milan Vermeer, who has a Ukrainian background, uh, and, and Madeleine Albright, and uh, numerous other people uh, went out and met with communities in Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, there are there are so many events to go through during an election season, and it kind of overlaps with a uh, a large Ukrainian cultural festival season that I kept pushing this to people. I'm like, if you want to go visit, here are the events. Go ahead. And there's also just targeted mailing yeah. and community and ethnic newspapers. The, inter- and the interesting thing, the thing, though, that I did not get a similar reaction from the Trump campaign in terms of reaching out on the ethnic level, uh, in terms of having you know a specific... We saw later on the Polish community was approached directly by him, and he posted pictures on that. But in terms of uh, reaching out in a similar way, I did not get that uh, on the state level. His campaign was run completely different than any other campaign. And, and you know, not, not a candidate who I uh, supported or liked, but uh, he did have a different approach, right? I mean, his, his approach here was, and, and Clinton, in my view, ran the last great campaign of the 20th century. Unfortunately, she ran it in 2016, and it wasn't quite good enough. And I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. I think she really did... I did a lot of politics in the 1980s and 1990s, and it was break the break the electorate down and rebuild it into a, into a majority, mm-hmm. and that's been ridiculed a lot. But it's a perfectly reasonable way in an extremely diverse country to build a coalition to make sure everyone's happy, to make sure no one is so angry that they're you know they're walking away and trying to you know knock the table over. Um, whereas Trump's entire campaign was where was was make America great again, which mm-hmm. had a obviously racial subtext, but also was we're not going to play this diversity pluralism game anymore. Right, right. So it, it would be very hard for him to say. And also, what was he going to say to Ukrainian Americans, right? I mean, I was asked by the <laughs> Ukrainian media, why would Ukrainian Americans vote for Trump? And I said, because they're voting on, on being white, not on being Ukrainian, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was better to make the pitch that way rather than, right. you know, a specific... Cause it, which, is, which is a pet peeve of mine because I've done numerous talks about how 
our our people aren't considered, you know, ontologically white. It's it's right, well, if, if 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 a if a jetliner is shot down over Ukraine, and that's the only news that comes out of <laughs> after twenty planes and helicopters have been shot down, it's only because there are Western Ukrainians on that plane, uh, Western Europeans Europeans, on that plane. (laughs) And and our people, those lives are just not, I mean, there there are people dying every day, and it's just not mentioned, similarly to, you know, it's the same thing as the Congo or Syria or et cetera. These lives are different than Western European or American. And being white, historically, is, you know, an achieved status, which Ukrainians achieved here. They didn't achieve it in Ukraine, but, you know, they achieved it here in places like Michigan or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that, that makes it a difficult to... I want to turn back to baseball for a little bit. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, I noticed in the bio that uh, next month you can have something in Chicago. There's a, there's a nice uh, unity day with uh, uh, Congressman Roxham and, and the Ukrainian Congress Committee in, in Illinois. What's the other name? John Herbst. Yeah, John Herbst. You know, you know John Herbst? Yeah, sure. yeah. Do you know that he was my assistant district administrator in Ukraine? No. Baseball-wise? I get this email... <laughs> years ago, from a guy who says, I'm moving to Kiev. I have two sons who play baseball. Is there baseball, Little League baseball in Kiev? I said, yes. Here's one Little League. Here's the phone number of the president. Off I go. Two weeks later, I get the Ukrainian Weekly. Uh-huh. Front page. I don't want to curse yeah. now. What? <laughs> I said, daughter went to heaven. John Herbst, incoming He's a big baseball amb- ambassador. So I go, I meet him in Kiev, of course, I go to his house. His kid pitches for the championship game, Kiev against Kirohrad. All the Little League meetings were held in the U.S. Embassy. At the end of the trip, I used to, um, I, I collected so much baseball equipment, had trouble bringing it over. I used to contact the um, doctors, uh, the, the medical people. The Ukrainian Medical Association of North America. No, 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 the, 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 the doctor in Jersey, with, uh, the ship, uh, the, the plane with all the equipment, the, I forgot his name. Okay. I would write to them, you know, uh, if you're sending over a shipment, can you take a couple of pieces of baseball boxes? Mm-hmm. No, we can't, we can't. So the last day or the last week that Herbs is serving Ukraine, he says, Basil, what can I do for you? I said, John, I have this tremendous amount of equipment. Help me get it to, you, to uh, Ukraine. He says, here's the card. Call her up and tell her that I want you to, that they, I want you to help them out, they, 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 them to help you out. So I called the same organization. took a year. Over 300 boxes of equipment was sent to Ukraine, but not just to Ukraine, to Peace Corps headquarters, where I knew I could mm, control it. Right. For years, until 2014, for every Little League Championship, Peace Corps volunteers served as umpires and scorers. Wow. I had Americans running it, so I knew Dudkevich. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a, the Peace Corps is back now. I contacted the Peace Corps it's director. It's a big Peace Corps operation. Ukraine. It was huge. It was yeah, number one. Old, they did have a, a, a year uh, uh, pause on that. Uh, they took them out of 14. Yeah. 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 The I, Russians came, they left. I taught for many years at Columbia, and I was at the Harriman Institute, so I taught a lot of courses related to this part of the world. And I would say, oh, you know, this is a very international... Excuse me, Children of Chernobyl Relief Fund. Oh, okay. Yeah. Matuskis. Yeah, 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 sorry, the name. That's it's the a very kind of international student body, but of the Americans, a third had been Peace Corps volunteers in Ukraine. Hmm. It was Fabulous the standard people. thing they did oh, between college and grad school. It was very funny. It was, it was a great <laughs> program, I guess. I think certainly... There was a, there was a, kids are walking by and they're talking at the championship. Kids talking to another kid. He said, you know something? In Ukraine, when Kirohrad is playing against Rivno and the home plate umpire is from Kirohrad, the kids say, we know who's going to win. The Kirohrad team. If we're playing in Rivno, the home plate umpire dictates it. That's the mentality. So I said to them, by the way, who's going to win today? 
I don't know. Americans are on pirates. <laughs> Which means they might like know the rules of the front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I have. I know some folks who would, who after their kids, you know, outgrew little and grew, grew too old, would umpire. Uh-huh. You know, and these are this is here in the United States, and this is effectively a volunteer position. I mean, oh, yeah. they might pay you, but it's effectively a volunteer position. And they would just say, "I just can't get off the baseball field." And I said, "You know what? I'm playing a softball league." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would, I would, you know, I would do it. If I were in Ukraine, you an umpire, of course I would do it. But as a regular thing here in the United States, I, I think it's, a, it's not the most, um, it's not the position on the field for which people feel the most gratitude. Right? It's kind of a, yeah, thankless, yeah, yeah. a thankless job. Um, so what are, what are some of the challenges of promoting baseball in, in a non-baseball country? In what ways is it totally foreign to people? I mean, I, I, I've even seen kids here who are Americans who, who are good at sports who pick up a baseball bat like it's some kind of a foreign... Um, they can throw a football, they can play basketball, look at it, like, what is this tool? How do I use it? Um, and there's anything that feels familiar. I mean, I, I give you, I knew a guy who promotes, works, uh, a Georgia guy who works a lot in Georgia on baseball, and he says, rather than the javelin, which I think is not part of the Georgian uh, athletic sports culture, he says to PE teachers around the country, if you see a kid who's good at throwing rocks, send him my oh, way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things, like, like the very foreign or somehow familiar to people about the game? You know, I, I really don't see it because when I, when I come to Ukraine uh, twice a year is to organize the championships. I believe that the community has to buy into the program. There's a website. I have assistants in Ukraine. I know all the coaches. I know uh, members of the national team. I want them to, 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 uh, to get involved, to, to push it in schools. For those teachers to say, listen, I, I, I urged... Uh, uh, the little the little coaches come to the tournament. Why don't you have a program for seven eight year olds? I'll pay for those co- for that course because it, it, it's peanuts. I can raise money to pay you. I want them to grow it. I want them to start at the age of five if they can. T ball coach pitch, and then if they have numbers, it's going to become something. But if they just focus on nine to twelve, because at at thirteen they lose them. There's only one stadium in, in, in Ukraine, in Kirohrad. It seats 900 people. It still hasn't been completed, but it's there. And Kirohrad is the center of baseball in Ukraine. Just about everybody on the national team comes from Kirohrad. So I want the community to do it. And I'm, I'm just, as, a, as an advisor, if there's a need for a clinic, I'll go, but you better bring the people in. I don't want to waste my time. I want them to buy into it. I can't push it. I don't want to pay somebody to do something, but if you're going to bring kids in and you want to add a class or two, I'll raise the money to help you do that. But I want you to help yourself first. 20 years from now, where do you think baseball in Ukraine is? <laughs> what would a goal be? Maybe that's an easier way to ask it. Uh, for, for the key of Little League to grow, and it's growing, there are three teams. Rivno is growing, that's in western Ukraine. Kirohat is stable. The other Little Leagues, that only have four teams. Uh, Kremenets, uh, uh, Ilichivsk, um, Ivanopuste, which are they're stagnant. There's no movement. It's three or four teams on paper that I get. Chernichi. I got a feeling they send me rosters for four. There's only one team. As I review the rosters, I, tell, I told uh, the coach, how come uh, when I get the four rosters that the kids who came to the championship all came from one team? <laughs> Well, I said, I said, because I, you know, I, I know what they're doing. I said, listen, if that's true, that means your best players are annihilating the other three teams. What's the fun of it? 
why does the kid want to play? So I know this, this trickery there. As, to be quite honest, it's in my report that in a championship in May, and the winner went to Kuto Poland represent Ukraine, I have to make sure the documents are legit. Right. So there was a little snafu about the scheduling. There was rain. I broke up the pools. Something happened. And a couple of coaches complained. And they were angry at me. So okay, boys. Before, I mean, years ago, I would check all the documents before the championship started. That took a lot of time. I have to check, make sure it's an original document, the dates are correct. Then I just focused on the championship team because they're the ones who are going to go to Kutno, Poland, where they're going to be really scrutinized. So after the tournament was over, I looked at all the documents. Eight all-star teams were there. The bottom five teams had massive problems. A month was changed to make a kid legal, or a year was changed to make a kid, be, uh, the uh, kid legal. So I wrote to each, uh, a general letter to all the leagues saying there were problems. Then specifically to every little league, every president, I said, you have major issues here. This can't happen again. So coming this year, the old Soviet way, when I come in that Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, just documents. Original <laughs> birth certificate. Right. Mm -hmm. That's you, know, you know, That's you, you let it go. You let it go. Right. You figure on their own, they're going to do the right thing. Uh-uh. Because, you know, Ukraine, uh, they say funding is based on results. Resultat. If you have a result, you ask for more money, they'll give it to you. If you took 7th place, ah, sure, that's, that's how it is, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing here. I mean, when I used to coach... Not in Little League, right? You know, yeah. When I, not for rec league. Not for the rec league. Well, that's what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, the rec league is different. But the rec league, it doesn't matter if you fudge a birth certificate, right? Because... Because you're going nowhere, right? Like, like if you're 11 and want to play with the 10-year-olds, I mean, I guess they'll let you, unless you're, like, really good at throwing. Which oh, right, you, okay. it's, it's more an issue here in most where they want kids to play up because then the parents can say, my kid's playing up. Right, so that actually becomes more of an issue. We've had to, and when I used to help administer the West Side Little League, that we would say, you know, we really don't want your kid to play up unless there's a special circumstance. And the special circumstance was often a family thing rather than, a, you know, we're we're both uh, we're Orthodox Jews and we don't play on Sunday, Saturday. We run them both on a Sunday right, team, right. and or something. They're close enough in age, or something like that. Or in one case, my younger son played up because um, I was coaching two teams, and it was just too much work for me to for me to get him to all these places. But that's during the rec league. That's the problem during the during uh, for summer team and tournament team play. Yeah, you have the same, and and they have, and you know, to tell parents that I need an original birth certificate to register your son for the summer team. People look like you're crazy, that's right. <laughs> and you have to have it. I can't take copies. I mean, I did this. I did this two or three summers, and you have to go up there with your folder, and then the parents are nervous. I'm not going to lose twenty birth certificates, you know. Well, and then you, you, all, you, all you want to do is look at it one time. Right. Yeah. But then when it comes to tournament time, you got to produce them for every game. Right, but then you, have copies. then you left have copies. Mm -hmm. If you show the original to the league administrator before the tournament. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, sure. But still, that means for one day, I have to have everybody. Yeah. You know? I'm like, okay, Such I'm, is I, life. I, I suppose I might get mugged <laughs> on the subway. I never did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it never became an issue. Well, we know there were issues in Little League with uh, the team from Chicago a couple of years ago. They yeah. wound, they wound right, up right. in the finals. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were illegal. They had an all-star team. Right. Uh, but Almonte from the Bronx. Right. Mm -hmm. That was a few years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was 14 years old. That's right. No, that's that's why they have to do it. So yeah, that's yeah. you know, and, and it is and it is just the strange thing of this is, especially in a country like Ukraine, these are not. This isn't a team of kids who are trying to get to the major leagues. You know, yet. I mean, this is not there. Do, do you know that three little teams have come to the U.S. to represent uh, the World Series from in the little league? World Series juniors? No, I mean, in the major. They're not trying to get to the major. No, league, no, but right. came yeah. from Ukraine. Uh, twice to Michigan, uh, Taylor, Michigan, two Ukrainian junior teams won a European championship, came here, and one big league team went to South Carolina in 98. So how far so do you think Ukraine success. is, or how far, how, <laughs> how, how much would, 
the World Baseball Classic have to be expanded for Ukraine to have a team? Expanded? Uh, how about uh, 128 teams? <laughs> 64 right, teams. Right now it's 16. 16. Oh, it's, it's tough. Including two from the U.S. Do you know about <laughs> You're this? calling Israel? or <laughs> is, is, was, is, was Israel? I mean, I, I, did you go to Brooklyn games in I Brooklyn? I did, of course. They won, right? Of course, yes. But how many actually lived in Israel? One. That's what I'm saying. I, went to, I, I interviewed Jerry Weinstein, the manager of that team on the podcast, my second episode. Of course. He was and he's a yeah, very to. smart guy. Like he's, and, and he's a very <laughs> smart baseball man. But he's from L.A. <laughs> and he's, uh, and yeah, his yeah. he's got a very impressive career, mostly in America, the major leagues. Like right. he's coached for the Colorado Rockies, you know. But he's not. And but but um, he did bring out for the last inning of the game the one Israeli-born player to pitch. And <laughs> for they, one inning, well, they had a nine-run lead. Well, uh, that's a good time to put him. <laughs> <Right. in. laughs> but, but the classic is not going to have. Uh, I mean, other than how many countries are going to be completely non-U.S. players? Other than you know, with a strong, rich. Baseball tradition, Japan, so. Holland, Cuba, Holland, Holland, right? Italy yeah. right. now more. But, than but Holland also has some had MLB, right? Holland tends to have Dutch, uh, like like Kersa, right. Kersa, which is a baseball hotbed, right? By right, the way. right, right. You okay. know, Burt Blylevin will manage it, right? Right, or right. Coach right, here some right, years, right. a hitting, a pitching coach some years, right. and Italy a little bit, but certainly you know the major Asian countries, the major Latin right. American countries, right? But you know, you could to put a team together that was even a third. Ukrainians right. and two-thirds Ukrainian Americans would be an exciting thing for but, Ukraine. Yeah, of course, we're talking about, you know, in the best of all worlds, you get the money you want, you win the lottery, you can do that. But, you know, when 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 Basil's talking about, you know, giving kids, you know, five hryvni for swinging, he's talking about... <laughs> <laughs> he's, a little love, not quite at that level. No, 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 no. But right. he's talking about, so people understand, 25 cents. Like, he's literally, I mean, we're talking about... Right, that's an important clarification. <laughs> we're talking yes. about an economic depression where the school budget, just well, to get the country functioning, is being cut by 10%. And that's radical. I mean, that's... Yes, effort, yes, yeah. yeah, there's bloat, of course, because a lot of the Soviet system haven't been reformed. But, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty hard situation to be in. So when you're talking about 20 years, you're talking about, well, how much of the country is going to be Ukrainian, first of, of all. Um, and uh, and you're talking about a situation, you know, when, when he talks about, when Basil talks about getting bats over to Slovyansk, right, right next to the, the, the uh, area that's being occupied, uh, to me that just recalls, like, how similar the situation is in Ukraine uh, with an economic depression of the United States in the 30s, where there are people who are, uh, you know, I have a friend whose cousin works in Poland as a maid in hotels. She's got a doctorate. She works as a yeah, maid in hotels sure. because she can she can provide for her entire family in Ukraine on that salary. Yep. Which is a which is a work ethic that Americans understood at that yeah, a different yes, generation. In a, in a different generation, and uh, and that's what Ukraine is undergoing now. It's you know everything is changing though. You know similarly to uh, the U.S. pre and post World Wars, completely different countries. Pre and post this war, completely different countries. Well. I, maybe following up on that to get back a little bit to like, the politics here, how worried do you think? I mean, you you've expressed in the last I don't know forty five seconds or so, a, a you know pretty good sense of what's going on in Ukraine and the mm-hmm. actual lives of you know in economic terms what it means for ordinary people. How worried are people here about the future of Ukraine, especially given the political events here? What what do Ukrainian Americans think? I mean, other than raising money and trying to help, how what is what is what do you think is the way forward for Ukraine? How does this... I mean, it's an uphill fight. I think we would all agree on that. But how does this end well for Ukraine? It became more uphill uh, in recently than it should have because mm-hmm. of the problems here. Mm-hmm. How does this... How does how did Ukraine move forward here? Ukraine has a long, long... You know, when, when the revolution started, it's not going to be 
you know, zero to 60 in a year. Uh, you know, they have to completely redo their entire country because their country, a country of 40, over 40 million, which is the largest country in Europe as well, uh, hasn't been remade since Soviet times. It's, you know, that's, you know, the, the Western world plunged in a lot of money to redo Europe after, the, after World War II. That attention wasn't paid to Eastern Europe after the Soviet era. So not only are we living with the consequences of that in terms of having a, a KGB man run the largest uh, you know, <laughs> army in the world um, in terms of Russia, not the largest army in the world, uh, but uh, you know, up there in terms of largest, largest number of the region. Largest, our, yeah, largest yeah. number of nuclear warheads, let's say that. Um, so all of that hasn't been purged. You know, there, ha- there was never a Nuremberg for the Soviet crimes. Uh, those people still remained. Ukraine, after independence in 91, we didn't function with a, um, the state of Ukraine didn't function with a constitution until 96. They were using literally their old constitution under Soviet times for five years. Uh, and uh, for a country of 40 plus million people to shift, it takes a lot of energy. And uh, I keep explaining this to my uh, radical Green Party or Democrat friends here. I'm like, who want a revolution here? I'm like, guys, uh, there's a reason why Georgia happened first, and then it took you know, a number of years for Ukraine to change, and we're not even looking at Russia changing, which is 150 million people. You know, For a country of 330 million people, there's not going to be a revolution in this country. But I, just... I often tell people, it doesn't end well. <laughs> that <laughs> I mean, too, that too, yeah, yeah. Think, before you go breaking something, you better really, I mean, I, <laughs> you have I, mean, a I, have a, you know, I was, I have strong roots in California, and talking to you know, political figure there who, who I know who was saying, you know, this, he wasn't being serious, but he was mm-hmm. saying there is real support for Cal Exit. Right, right, right. And I said, you know, I get that, but understand, yeah. this isn't going to go smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going to get ugly. Right, right, Even right, though right. I, on the politics, right. I get it. You right, know, like, right. Yeah. But for Ukraine, it's, it's talking about, you know, changing all of this stuff. When, when Basil mentions that the team is centered in Kirovohrad, you know, there's, there's a province in Ukraine that's still named after a Soviet hero. Like, <laughs> it's, it, you know, those are the simple things that only now Ukraine has gotten rid of, like statues and stuff. Right, the but, but in terms of purging, purging the, the judiciary, purging the prosecutors, it's a long project. They say in generations. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was just at a talk with uh, David Satter uh, last week in Brooklyn, which was phenomenal, but one of the questions some people asked was what's going on with how come Ukraine hasn't prosecuted these guys who at least yeah. shot people on the Maidan, right? I'm like, well, you haven't done, you haven't changed the judiciary or the prosecutor's office, other than, you know, some the heads and stuff. Those other prosecutors are still, the corrupt people are still there. How do you prosecute right. a case? How do you bring a case to, to prosecution with obvious, you know, criminals? But, you know, hearing you, hearing you say this, what, 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 what you're talking about is the challenge of building functioning institutions, right? I mean, in, in, in very yeah. broad terms mm-hmm. and, and different, in different areas of yeah. political and civic life. And this is also a warning that of, of the challenges, of the import of maintaining those institutions. Because once they get corrupted, infected, if you will, it's very hard to fix them. Yeah. Because the laws that protected you now now <laughs> do the opposite, exactly. but they're still strong. Right. And that's and that does. And I, I mean, this is, you know, I, I've often said that, that the, the U.S., Efforts to assist Ukraine have been, you know, it's always if you look at it, it's a USAID funding cycle, and this is just the way it's a two-year plan, right? And it's now tw- we've had basically thirteen two-year plans. Probably <laughs> should have had three ten-year. We should be able right. to have to think. Right. It's not a two-year project. No. It's it's a very long-term term project. Project. I want to ask a question related to this that that for, for both of you, and then I want to give you a chance to ask questions of each other. Mm-hmm. But the question is this. Do you think there is a relationship, and I'll flesh this out, between baseball, politics, 
attitudes towards the West. So I want to ask a couple component pieces of this. One, is baseball seen as something that is, that is, so for example, when I was, until very recently, right, when I was, um, Americans who liked soccer <laughs> fell into two camps, right? One, people who came from countries, had roots in countries where they played soccer, right? So if you were an immigrant from various countries, Brazil, I was having Brazilian friends the other night, that's an extreme example, mm-hmm. but you know, something like that. And then it was Americans who were really trying to seem cool, right? Like, I'm cosmopolitan because I like soccer, mm-hmm. right? It was a way to telegraph something. And I don't mean that. I mean, we do that in the music we listen to, the clothes we wear. Is baseball seen as something that is, if you're, you know, it's a way of, in other words, the positive might be it's a way of signaling that, you know, I'm interested in, in a Western-looking Ukraine. This hypothesis. But the negatives might be it's a scene that it's a sport that is looked down upon because it's American and it's associated with America. It might be either way, right? Um, but also, is it seen as kind of, how does it fit into a broader soft power cultural exchange framework? Baseball is, you know, we have, baseball is a country that's played many, many, a game that's played in many countries. And in many cases, it wasn't the United States that, that introduced it. So Japan introduced baseball to other countries mm-hmm. in, in Asia, for example. But, but it's played in a lot of countries. It is a reflection of American soft power. And in some cases, soft power linked very closely to hard power. But also, it's, it's a great American... It's, in my, for my money, one of the best aspects of American culture that I'm very happy to see going to other countries. So how does it fit into that American kind of foreign policy well, framework? I, I, when I speak to coaches, initially, when I meet a, a new community, I tell them that what the little... Because I'm pushing a little league program because you need massive numbers of kids playing before because my ideal is that eventually the Ukraine national team will make the WBC the classic yeah. yeah but you need kids you need kids so I tell you about the little league structure that the program is basically you you build a strong base where you are four, five, six teams as many as you can and then you enter the Ukrainian little league championship with a chance to win that and represent Ukraine as your own community it's not a national team going to Kutno Poland for the European regionals it could be a little Salah there was a little place near Suma years ago. There was a gentleman, Anatoly Sakno, who's Ukrainian. He was uh, worked for the Peace Corps in Ukraine as a youth developer as Peace Corps volunteers came in. His mother was a director of a school in this little town, which I wrote about. thousand people, uh, uh, 500 cows, and no buses, <laughs> no transportation. So I said, Anatoly, why don't you talk to your mother about starting a program? After a couple of years... Uh, she says yes, and it was an older gentleman, one phys ed teacher. They started a little league program, and they raised money to go to Ilyichius to Odessa for the little league championship. The team comes, and the, they're playing their first game. The coach is at third base. He says, Vasily, come here. I said, what? He says, he has a camera. He says, well, look at the photograph. I said, there's a game going on. I said, look at the photograph. He says, there's Ivan uh, sitting in the train. Okay. There's Marika walking onto the train, walk, walking up the steps. I said, why are you showing me this? He says, if it wasn't for Little League Baseball, these kids would not have been on a train. They've never been on a train in their life. <laughs> so I tell him, a little salaw. If you win the championship in, in Ukraine, you go to Poland, you win that, you come to the United States free. So I said, there is, there is a possibility here of traveling. Also, if you increase your skills and play a good ball player and learn English, this possible getting a scholarship, maybe go to high school here, but you have to learn the language. So I'm giving him an opportunity to, to uh, uh, of how if, if you increase your skills, 
learn a language, there's a possibility to travel somewhere and become, who knows, and then meet somebody in Poland. You can meet someone from Poland or from Uganda who traveled to Tokutna or from Ireland. You meet someone who's 12 years old, you become friends, who knows what becomes of that. It's an opportunity to travel. So literally gives you that opportunity. And it's, you know, and also when the Peace Corps volunteers were there, they're representing the United States. These, these guys and gals were phenomenal. They, they lived in with the kids, basically. They interact with them the entire day. All positive vibes of the U.S. So that's the way Little League opens up the U.S. and the world to the kids, or it could. Again, it depends on the kid, what he does with it. But I, I say it's, it's like completing your dream. You want to come to the United States? Well, do well in school, play ball, inc get better at your position, have the entire team get better, win a championship, dream on. I, Ukraine is such a fascinating country where you have these villages where nobody yeah. leaves ever. And that's similar to the United States. There's people who never leave their zip code. We know that here. You know, studies yeah. have shown that. But, you know, we are so technologically advanced in some areas where... You know, our tech IT outsourcing is going to be up to $6 billion next year. It's, you know, so there, there's all those advanced people. Uh, not that village life is in advance, but it's a different speed. Uh, when I go election monitoring, I go in, you know, every presidential election I'll go, and, oh, there's the American. There's the one American who comes by every right. five years, and we don't see another American in the next five years. So, I remember the uh, first, I've done that twice. I, I never <laughs> about it. The first election I observed in Georgia, which was ah. in, in a <laughs> town called Samtredia, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, mm -hmm. And it, was a, it wasn't a national election, it was a special you know, parliamentary seat that had opened up. And there was a, you know, you had to have ID to, to yeah. vote, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, this was 2000, I want to say 2002. So given that, they were, you know, people, like, the state couldn't produce ID cards for people. It couldn't function at that level. So if you, any ID was, you know, including an old Soviet passport, just right. for example, anything. Um, and, and somebody didn't have ID, and one of the, my Georgian colleague was asking her about the voter, and she, the vote, uh, the person administrator about you know how can you let that person vote they didn't have an ID and the woman says and I won't say the profanity but she said it in Georgian <laughs> but it was translated in English she goes anybody with a passport has already left the city <laughs> <laughs> right right so, there's, there's some you know doing a lot of voter observation there's a lot of you know I've seen you know old people who are like my husband's blind I literally have to carry him into the voting right. booth but he, but, <laughs> and right. I'll you know, and not everyone, and people are, I mean, I, I, this, I remember this election here, it was a, there were, I, this is a very diverse electorate district, as you can imagine, yeah. people from, from all over, lots of different languages, and there was a very old Chinese couple who hadn't voted in a very long time, mm -hmm. and they were struggling with vision, I mean, the right. ballot information was available in their language, but it was the same kind of thing, where they, you know, they... But bringing up again yeah. the fact that we're talking about this vast diversity in this country, again, I, you know, I keep having to explain to Americans what a size of the country is. It's, you know, 40 million people is huge, but just geographically, you know, you're driving from Cleveland to New York and you're still not covering the entire country of Ukraine. It's, <laughs> you know, you go to some cities, you know, if you go to Western Ukraine, you're closer to seven different European capitals than your own capital city. Uh -huh. It's so, yeah, it's, true, it's true, you know, true. people wow. don't understand when you're, t when, you know, I keep having to mention the largest country in Ukraine is, in yeah. Europe is being invaded by the largest <laughs> other world. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right. Uh, it's a big thing, you know. I can't take but but Americans and, yeah. have a hard time with that because for us, there's a handful of countries that are, I mean, we're all Americans, right? You know, Australia, you understand the same size. Canada, same size. Russia, you know, bigger than any country in the world. Mm -hmm. And then there's tiny countries, right. which is any country fewer than 10 million. Georgia's a tiny country, right? right? right. 
And then there's the medium-sized condors, which are the hardest to get our heads around. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. oh, wow, it actually is big. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. not, it doesn't fit into one of our states. No. Right? No. No. Yeah. That's, and, and if you look at, you know, the CIA fact book, when they give a country profile, it always says population, you know, X, and they'll give a little demographic information, export, import. Area will give you a statistic, which doesn't mean anything to most no. Americans. It'll say roughly the size of, yeah. and it lists an American <laughs> yeah. state. And for yeah. almost every, outside of maybe 30 countries, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Oh, it's the size of West Virginia. I know what that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. And if well, it's really big, it's the size of California or Texas. That's how, but that's how you explain it to people. You know, when Crimea is taken over, you know, we've lost Maryland. Like, right. Right. More. <laughs> we, more until like Texas, maybe. You know, I, lost, I lost Little League in, in Simferopol. Huh? There's a, a professional team in uh, the university mm-hmm. in Simferopol, which I've visited many times. Gone. Mm-hmm. Poof, go. I don't know where they are. Or if you want to shift to, to you know, for uh, to, to football, for soccer for a second, you know, the fact that Donetsk Shakhtar had to move yes. all the way to the other side. To you know, it's like the Yankees, uh, uh, Yankee Stadium got bombed got to bombed. hell. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, they're, yeah, right, and they're right, playing right. in Dodger Stadium right. yeah. for the rest of the next two years. What, I mean, that's, how, that's what happened. That's yep. crazy. Yes. <laughs> but that's the reality of life now, so. Well, Maybe, do you two want to take a moment? I, I'd like to give you guys a chance to, and you've been talking to each other a lot, and you probably have a lot of the same references, but do you want to ask some questions to each other? I want other? to ask you about Ukakai. Uh, you hosted, or you were part of the Ukrainian baseball night. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did, uh, we've done Heritage Night here. I never heard about it. We, well, uh, because uh, you have to, you have, you have to, you have to, this, this happens very quickly when, uh, sorry, quickly on the Ukrainian scale, where we don't have lots of honorary committees organizing mm-hmm. it. But between uh, our local branches of our, uh, this is a national umbrella organization that I represent, uh, we have a local branch in Yonkers, New York, and right. in uh, New York here, and we collaborated on two um, uh, Ukrainian heritage nights at City Field when we were like, you know, you had Irish night, you got Jewish night, mm-hmm. where's your Ukrainian night? And uh, they changed the metrics where now it's not just 5,000 people. I think they just jumped it up to like 20,000 people you got you got or 10,000 or something to buy out a section to have a whole night. So uh, we kind of paused it for a little bit, but we're hoping to get that back. We did, uh, we've done a couple of hockey nights also with uh, the Devils and at the Prudential Center. Uh, I think there are some hopefully getting an actual New York-based team to do a hockey night here. with the Miron... Uh, Bits, yes, right, yes, Miron, yes. Uh, the, the head of the Ukrainian Sports Museum. Right. Um, I, by the way, I, I made it. I'm in the Ukrainian Sports Museum. Is that right? Yeah. Where is that? In Whippany, New Jersey. Yeah, they just had a big uh, big opening of, of the, uh, of the you know, with the board and stuff. Uh, they're, they're in the Ukrainian Cultural Center. And I was in Ukraine then. <laughs> I could, you know, every time that something happens... Uka invites me to the I, holiday party. I, I'm I, in Ukraine. I have uh, I have like 50 things going on that same night that we had the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the opening of that sports museum. But uh, but yeah, well, you're the first Hall of Famer to be in the podcast. This is very exciting. <laughs> oh really? I have to, I have, to, I have you been there? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. Look at this before me. That's impossible. <laughs> and uh, but the Heritage Night was awesome at City Field because we had uh, just like any other night. If you've right. been there for Jewish, I've night, been there for Jewish night. Jew- yeah, uh, where they have the dancing Special on top menu, of the dugout. Menu there, that I know. Yeah, oh, they do. They do. They have, you know, it's very interesting. I have, I have a friend who's. <laughs> I have a friend. You know, in a couple of years, years ago, they played a couple times. I'm not a Mets fan. I'm a, I'm a Yankee fan and a it's Giants so fan, right? Yankees. So, but Yankees so, do not do Heritage Night. I know. Well, well, do yeah, but night, the Mets do. So, so my Jewish Jewish buddy who's got season tickets, he invited me, and we he. He said, do you want to go to take me out to pogrom? <laughs> <laughs> he was being funny, but dark humor. And it was it was great. But then, so then, last su- this summer, um, it happened that I was going to be in San Francisco for Jewish night at 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 and T awesome. Park, the Giants game. And my kids and I are big Jewish Giants fans. So and, and, and it was weird because I was buying the tickets online, and I wasn't sure. I was going to send them with my stepfather because I wasn't sure I'd be in town. Mm-hmm. And um, and it said five dollars extra for the Jewish Heritage Night. 
So I said, well, I don't really know what that meant, but I just paid for it, right? <laughs> yeah. So then, so you got a special ticket, right? Oh. So I got my special ticket, and we went, they took the streetcar down there or whatever. And they said, oh, if you have the ticket, you go over there. And basically, they didn't, and I don't know if they did this just for Jewish night, but, you know, in this day and age, they didn't have, it wasn't Jewish night for the whole ballpark. And one of the reasons is, at what was then Shea, but later City Field, mm-hmm. when they do Jewish night, they sing the Israeli national anthem. Yeah. I don't think they want to do that in San Francisco. There's so much anti-Israel sentiment. Wow. So I don't know why, but I'm, I'm just oh, guessing. But yeah. they didn't. So they went off to a special area oh. where there were all these Jewish tables and NGOs and things like that. And I was there, but 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 really, then I noticed these guys, some of the fans oh. wearing hats with Hebrew giants on mm-hmm. them, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, that's that's what I want. Mm-hmm. So then, so that was the giveaway. So that's what your special ticket got you. The cap was the cap, yeah, yeah. but it was a nice hat. I mean, it was, it's a cool cap. So, so where is it? Where is it? It's downstairs. <laughs> but, but if you look over there, you have my every two years my collection of World Series championship giants yeah, hats I see that, yeah. um, on the shelf. But so. So, um, so like we got the cabs, we're walking around, and, and, and you know, this is like, it's California, so it's like craft beer, and I don't drink, and it's like wine, and, and, and then all these organizations, but we don't live there. So I said, and then we're kind of fencing, I said, you know what, guys, when they start fencing and all the Jews, it's time to get out of here. <laughs> so we took off and went, went back to the game and just watched, you know, from the regular, from a regular. So season. much for heritage. It's a, but it's a big thing here on the East Coast, at least. Uh, uh, I know the Islanders have been doing heritage nights for years, and, and uh, several Jewish organizations, they rent out entire halls in association with that so um, <laughs> so uh, so it's a good th- I, I like I like the endeavor I like Americans understanding the melting pot sure. and, and I, I like pro- promoting our heritage so uh, so and the fact that you know and I got to sing a couple of times at City Field so that's fun also oh you so. sing yeah yeah I, I sing well in the shower. You sing well in the shower. I have to. Somebody has got to conduct the church choir. Sunday, so uh. I'm, I'm very good at memorizing lyrics, although I don't sing. But, but uh, you know, I can tell you any Bob Dylan or, or, or Leonard Cohen lyric. Oh, Leonard Cohen. Yeah, it's a tough year. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for participating. It's a great conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Hopefully, happy was, Hanukkah. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Happy New Year. Our Christmas is in January. Yes, well, January seventh. We wait. We wait. I know. I know. People say, "How come you don't switch?" Why? No. no all I know is January seventh. What is right, it? I just so- have to do a caveat. As I'm a church cantor, my Christmas season doesn't begin till January seventh. That means I don't sing anything, any Christmas carols until then. So if I hear oh. stuff in October, you know, I'm singing Christmas carols until Valentine's Day, just so people understand. <laughs> big um, demand. <laughs> big demand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lincoln. Thank you. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Again, if you want to learn more about baseball in Ukraine or perhaps help out with baseball in Ukraine, please contact Basil at bt4ukraine at aol.com. For more from Andrish, follow him on Twitter at tfukaa. And I'm at Lincoln Mitchell. Thanks again for listening all year long. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and we look forward to seeing you in 2017.